Welcome to The Landscape, your show about the outdoors and America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. On the show today, a conversation about the role urban parks play in conservation, everything from the 30 by 30 effort to social justice. We will talk to a Colorado political icon, Happy Haynes, about Denver Parks and Recreation, which she runs, as well as the unique role Denver plays owning and managing mountain parks outside of the city. If you aren't familiar with Happy or her story, stick around. Uh, From the city council to the school board, she has spent a lifetime in public service. It's a great conversation we've got coming up. But first, let's do the news. The Interior Department is about to hold a forum on the future of oil and gas leasing on public lands. It's coming up on Thursday, March 25th, so maybe right after or right before you listen to this. The forum is the first step in a top-to-bottom review of the oil leasing program. We will hear from conservation groups, from legal experts, the oil industry, and public health advocates during what looks to be three and a half hours. The question is, what comes next? How big will the Biden administration's review be? Will it take everything into consideration, from public health impacts to climate change to jobs? And will the oil industry keep going with its line, which has so far been to predict imminent doom for their employees and for schools and kids across the West? Well, we just took a new look at the numbers, wondering if this temporary leasing pause is really that serious for the industry. And it turns out that oil companies have been leasing so much public land, they have been letting millions of acres go after initially locking them up. My colleagues, Jesse Prentice-Dunn and Tyler McIntosh, are on the line. Tyler, we'll start with you. Walk us through the top-line numbers that we have found here. So this research took a look at the permits and leases that the oil and gas industry had a chance to use, but never did. It turns out that the industry regularly gives up approved leases and permits to drill. Between 2011 and 2020, more than 20 million acres of approved onshore federal leases were forfeited without ever going into production. And between 2016 and 2020, more than 8,400 approved onshore drilling permits either expired without being used or are still currently sitting unused. That's 54% of all permits approved during those five years. So more than half the time, even after jumping through the hoops to say, yes, we're ready to drill on this land, oil companies then end up not drilling anyway. That's the, the bottom line here? That is correct. Wow. Okay. Uh, so Jesse, what do numbers like that mean in the context of this review of the entire oil and gas leasing system? Well, this shows us that the the limiting factor for oil and gas companies is not the amount of public lands that are available for drilling. It is not the amount of drilling permits that are available to them. They are awash uh, in chances to drill on our public lands. So what we're really looking for here is a complete overhaul of this outdated and rigged system for drilling on our public lands. So we want to take a look at um, the fact that we shouldn't really be allowing uh, the oil industry to lease places that have no potential for oil and gas drilling. And we should be making sure that if they do uh, lease that land, that they're paying their fair share both to taxpayers, but also accounting for the cost to our climate and our communities and our public health. Uh, And so I think this is a a chance for a top to bottom look 
at this outdated system and, and for reform. And in the short term, uh, as we see the, the governor of Wyoming today talking about filing lawsuits over this, what does it mean for the oil industry given the amount of leases and even approved permits that they end up not using? I mean, how, how dire is it for them right now? Well, I think all you have to do is look at quotes from oil and gas industry CEOs who um, in the press will say that this is the sky is falling. But in places where they can't just lie, like to shareholders and investors before the Securities and Exchange Commission, they will readily tell their investors that they have more than enough permits and leases, uh, that this will not impact their bottom line at all. One of the loudest critics of the pause has been the Western Energy Alliance, especially the head of the group, Kathleen Sagama. Tyler, what did these numbers reveal specifically about members of the Western Energy Alliance? With these numbers, we were able to take a look at which operators have been forfeiting the most approved permits. And it turns out that 12 of the 25 operators that have forfeited the most permits are Western Energy Alliance members or subsidiaries of members, including all of the top five. Um, so this suggests that many Western Energy Alliance members don't need additional chances to drill, as Jesse mentioned, as they're voluntarily giving these up. And and the top five operators in terms of giving up leases and acres are all Western Energy Alliance members. Jesse, what are you going to be watching for at the oil leasing forum coming up on Thursday? Well, I think this is a really refreshing um, event in the sense that during the Trump administration, the Interior Department was run by a literal oil and gas lobbyist who was seeking to open up all of our public lands to drilling and mining. And in this event, you can see the Biden administration really reaching out to communities that are impacted by these drilling programs, um, reaching out to labor unions that represent uh, workers in the oil and gas industry, public health agencies. So uh, I think it's a refreshing return to balance in terms of how we manage our public lands. And so, uh, frankly, I'll be looking to, to see w what are the opportunities for us to overhaul this system that is doing nobody any favors except for oil and gas CEOs. All right, Jesse Prentice Dunn and Tyler McIntosh here at the Center for Western Priorities. Thanks you both so much. Thank you. Aaron. Our guest today is the deputy mayor of Denver and the executive director of Denver Parks and Recreation, but her time in politics and conservation stretches across four decades. Allegra Happy Haynes was the first African-American woman elected to the Denver City Council, where she served for 13 years, two of those as council president. She was also an elected member and then president of the Denver School Board. She helped found the Mile High Youth Corps, which puts kids on pathways to careers in conservation, construction, health care, and more. She currently chairs the Colorado Advisory Board for the Trust for Pub Public Lands. The list goes on and on, but we really should just get to this interview. So, Happy Haynes, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's clear from your biography you have an impressive, a wide-ranging career in civic engagement broadly. So what drew you to focus on parks specifically? Well, and it's always been a personal passion for me. Uh, I, um, I've always been an athlete, uh, an outdoors person. I started gardening early in life with my grandmother, uh, always drawn to outdoor activities, whether they were 
um, you know, sports or nature based. Uh, and as I as I grew to have more opportunities to get out in nature, uh, I you know I became enamored with uh, you know those kinds of outdoor activities, uh, hiking, rafting, fishing, and and so. So a lot of this is really personal for me, and it really led in many ways to my conservation-focused uh, work. Um, and I'm very fortunate over my life, as, as you mentioned, my background in, um, to you know, my twin passions of um, uh, children and education and um, you know, being outdoors in nature. Um, and so I, I'm very fortunate to be able to combine those passions here in, in this uh, current role. Give us the high level look at your day-to-day. What's it like overseeing one of the, the biggest parks systems in the country, both in terms of the city and in terms of the square mileage and acreage over which the system covers? Yeah, well, uh, it, it, interesting question, uh, because it dis, despite being such an outdoors person, I actually spend most of my day in meetings. <laughs> and, and this past year, uh, uh, I, you know, in front of a screen. Um, and so it's always a treat for me to be able to even get out into the field to visit staff and to see what's happening in, in, in our parks and in our mountain facilities. Um, I, I have a watch on that Actually, I, I'm embarrassed to say, has to sometimes remind me, don't you want to get up and walk? Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, the work of, uh, you know, managing and creating and building a park system um, involves a lot of uh, sitting down and in meetings and writing and, and uh, talking. But um, it, it's, uh, it is a, it's a, a burden that I, I welcome because it, it, it makes a difference and helps uh, keep our system uh, moving forward. The mayor of Denver, Michael Hancock, recently signed a letter along with 70 other mayors around the country promoting the 30 by 30 effort, which listeners to this podcast have heard a lot about. It's the effort to protect 30 percent of America's land and waters by 2030. How does the city see itself engaging on 30 by 30? And how do you see urban parks contributing to what is a, a big number and a big, broad conservation goal? Yeah, the, it is a, a, you know, a, a big, hairy, audacious uh, goal and, and good for our uh, mayors, our uh, mayors of cities where, you know, you don't think of um, open space and certainly not large, you know, large swaths of open space. But, you know, cities are where people are. And um, so I'm proud of Mayor Hancock and the other uh, mayors of cities who've recognized that open spaces are critically important in our urban communities. uh, And that translates for uh, our people here to be appreciative and supportive of our efforts outside of the cities. Um, It's a combined effort and it has to happen everywhere. Um, And so the appreciation for open spaces in some ways even more acute in uh, cities like Denver, where, you know, the built environment is, you know, is, um, you know we're all built out almost, um, and um, open space is sometimes scarce. Um, and in cities that we're fortunate to be, you know, economically in good shape and thriving, it, it means land prices uh, are higher. And so acquiring open space is even more difficult. Um, and so part of it is, is, is creating the political will 
Um, and, you know, in responding to an overwhelming um, uh, sentiment on the part of people who live here, that open space is essential to our quality of life um, in, in, uh, in our urban communities. I saw a quote from you talking about the fact that parks are often seen as a nice to have, but that they're actually important pieces of infrastructure, just like streets are or, or, or garbage collection. How do you move parks from that nice to have category into the must have as important as roads or healthcare or, or filling potholes kind of category? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and and it really when I when I first joined uh, uh, Parks and Recreation in 2015, we were just in front of a, a citywide uh, planning effort, um, not only for Parks and Recreation, but our planning agency, our new comprehensive plan, our um, uh, then Public Works agency in in uh, planning for transportation and mobility. And, um, you know, we recognized uh, collectively that, um, you know, that parks uh, and open spaces were critical, uh, just as critical infrastructure to uh, the health and the well-being uh, of our city as, as the other services. Um, that, um, you know, when we think of our environment, when we think of the challenges we face in, in terms of uh, climate change and responding to that, that um, you know, parks are not just great places to play. They they are the the lungs and the you know heart, the circulatory system of, uh, of our city. Um, and so it, it wasn't a, a really a, a, as heavy lift as I might have thought to um, you know to convince uh, all of my colleagues in in the city that this was true. And so, you know, we've been working ever since uh, on, you know, on a, on a theory that parks and open spaces are a cr- critical part of Denver's infrastructure and the quality of life that we're all seeking, uh, you know, to improve and to build on. I want to talk about the role that parks play within cities specifically. The Hispanic mm-hmm. Access Foundation commissioned a study last year that shows that the U.S. has fewer forests, streams, wetlands, natural places near the places where black, Latino, and Asian American people live. And especially for families with children, they have less access to nature nearby than the rest of the country. In other words, these communities are nature-deprived. Do you think, number one, that Denver is in as good or a better place than its peer cities? Uh, and what work has still has to be done in terms of making sure all of Denver's families have that proximity to nature? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I, I, I think the reality, that reality of, of that access gap um, is something, is a powerful driver for what we do in Denver Parks and Recreation every day. And I get a chance to work with a lot of my colleagues around the country and I don't, you know, I guess, you know, acre by acre, I'm not, I'm not sure how we stack up. Uh, I would, I would say this that we certainly share uh, um, that uh, challenge, um, and I, and I think it's one that parks and recreation um, um, executives all across this country are are acutely focused on um, uh, closing that gap. Um, it's the reason why we uh, in Denver. 
adopted the uh, Trust for Public Land 10-minute um, walk uh, standard. Um, and, and more than that, that it, it's not just a 10-minute walk to a quality park, trail, or playground. But in our instance in Denver, we want to make sure that some of that uh, access is more nature-based. Um, we want to introduce more opportunities for connection to uh, natural systems, to whether it's water, whether it's um, pollinator gardens, whether it's, um, you know, recreating uh, the, you know, sort of the natural uh, environment of Denver. Denver is a, a high plains um, uh, area. So, you know, just introducing some of the, the natural uh, historic features of our city uh, where we can, even, even in some of our already uh, existing sort of um, more formalized parks, uh, we, we actually have a plan to convert some spaces within those areas, um, and particularly in our underserved communities, where they, they have a, ch- uh, a chance to understand the ecology uh, of our, um, you know, of our community, you know, even though we're a very urban in- environment, and, and that people can find respite and find, um, you know, that sort of oasis in, in, in the middle of the hustle and bustle of the city. And, um, you know, it's an experience that I had, you know, growing up, I, I had the good fortune to live within walking distance of one of Denver's historic uh, um, large parks where there were some natural features. And, you know, it's what stoked my imagination about being outdoors. And, you know, I had a tiny little box culvert that I spent time in and pretending that I was in the jungle or in the (laughs) forest or whatever. Uh, And it's, it's what shaped, you know, who I am and and the fact that I am here today. And so I am really very personally um, motivated to um, ensuring that we have those kinds of opportunities uh, in every one of our neighborhoods. And, and again, with a strong focus on, um, you know, the kids and families who traditionally have not had that kind of access. I, I think a lot of our listeners outside of the Denver area, certainly outside of Colorado, may not realize that Denver's park system extends well beyond the city and county limits. And there are 22 mountain parks. Can you give us a little bit of the history of that and and what's coming next for that mountain parks system? Sure. Uh, it is, a, a, I, I think, a, still a, too much of a well-kept uh, secret uh, in our mountain park system. And it's existed since, I mean, they started planning for it right around the turn of the last century in the early 1900s. Um, and, um, and so, you know, really began acquiring the land and, and so on in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and so people uh, may not be aware as they're traveling up the heavily used I-70 uh, corridor, particularly, you know, heading to some of our um, world famous, uh, you know, ski, uh, ski mountains and facilities um, you know, Genesee Park right along the edge of that highway where we have a bison herd that's very popular. And most people don't know that that's a Denver park. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lookout Mountain, not far from there, 
um, that uh, houses the Buffalo Bill uh, Museum, um, a, a very uh, well-known and colorful character of, of uh, our Western heritage is also a Denver park. And there we are running a, a museum facility uh, in one of our parks. Uh, many people also know uh, Red Rocks, and they think of it as um, one of the world's premier uh, outdoor music venues, but what they don't know is that surrounding park, Red Rocks, is a Denver park um, and really is an important part of uh, Denver's geologic uh, uh, history. And, and so many more, the uh, Echo Lake that's at the summit of Mount Evans is a Denver um, mountain park. And so, you know, many others um, that are part of our extensive 14,000-acre uh, mountain park um, system. And, you know, and they vary uh, from, you know, camping sites to uh, we have an outdoor um, um, uh, a ropes course, um, obstacles and, and, you know, training for uh, outdoor adventure uh, to uh, conservation areas that are primarily focused on uh, preserving wildlife habitat in the natural environment. Um, we just recently um, in, um, got involved in a, a, our, our latest and, and really the first new acquisition to our mountain park system since it was created uh, uh, or since uh, early in the 40s or 50s um, in a 450-acre um, uh, ranch uh, that was donated uh, to the to the Denver Parks and Recreation System by wonderful family who wants to leave a legacy, appreciated our mountain park system, um, has Denver roots, um, mm. it, it had families that spend time growing up in Denver, and so wanted to contribute to that with their own family legacy. So we're very, very pleased about that. Let's talk about that Axton Ranch because uh, it, it's Axton yeah, Ranch. It's been yeah. seventy years since there's there's been uh, an addition. What's that process going to look like, especially since that's one that's not only not just one county over, but it stretches all the way into to Gilpin County, I believe. How does that yes. work working with with, I guess, across the city, two counties, all of these neighbors? What, what is that planning process going to look like to make that park uh, accessible and part of the system? And a, a great question. And it's something that, you know, we experience regularly. Our mountain parks are all uh, located in somebody else's neighborhood, so to speak, in other counties. And so we have a long history of uh, collaborating and coordinating with uh, our partners uh, in other counties. Uh, this this new ranch is uh, partly in Jefferson County as well. It's uh, uh, county where we we have just a lot of collaborative ventures uh, with with our adjoining mountain park systems. Uh, um, many people who leave Denver and go to the foothills or go into our facilities um, uh, travel on our trails. Don't know whether they're on a Jefferson County Trail or a, a Denver uh, mountain park system, and and uh, we work hard to make it that way. Make it uh, you know a smooth process where um, all can enjoy our facilities. Um, this is a new one for us and, and uh, having a facility in Gilpin County. It adjoins uh, some wonderful um, uh, U.S. forest land, uh, Roosevelt National Forest, some state parks, um, Golden Gate uh, State uh, Park, Golden Gate Canyon State Park is nearby. Um, we're right on the edge of Boulder and Boulder's extensive open space system and we've already begun the process of talking about 
you know, how we work together across these front range uh, mountain facilities um, to provide the best access and experience uh, for our uh, various communities. Um, and so we know that our Denver parks also serve the communities where they're located um, in, and that we, while we are making uh, efforts to get more Denver residents, and again, particularly young people and families from our underserved communities in Denver to have access to these facilities, we know that they serve uh, all of uh, the communities along the Front Range. And so really working closely with our uh, county colleagues, our open space colleagues, uh, county commissioners, and uh, the neighbors uh, in the in the um, you know directly adjacent to our um, uh, facilities and in this in this case Axton Ranch, um, we uh, always want to be good neighbors uh, and good stewards of our uh, natural resources and our natural environment. And so, our planning efforts will be really focused on doing that. Let's talk a little more about access for underserved communities. I, I lived up in. Conifer for for about five years and RTD bus service up to there up to mountain parks in Evergreen or, or in Genesee that you mentioned I mean, that that bus service is minimal to non-existent even before the pandemic so how do you solve that problem how do you get folks who don't have a car up into in, into the mountains into these mountain parks to make sure that they are accessible for all Denver residents. Oh, a great question, and I think uh, I think I think it's a um, there are multiple um, strategies. Um, uh, one is actually advocating for more public uh, uh, transportation access, and I know we share that with our you know our colleagues up in the in the in the ski resorts and the mountain facilities too. Uh, I seventy is a very heavily used highway and it, it's it's hard and so I, I i think there's a good reason you've been on yeah, it right it's, it's, you, it's more often a parking lot on, on ski weekends because there's no transit <laughs> it's <Yeah>. exactly <laughs> it's a parking lot on on uh, on weekends during ski season but you know so continuing to advocate along with others for uh, more available public uh, transit i think is is part of uh, the strategy but for us it, it is also about programming uh, so we know that we've got a um, we uh, and we've already invested this past year with some of the legacy funds that we were able to uh, get from uh, very generous voters in Denver who passed a sales tax initiative to dedicate resources to our parks and open spaces, and we um, we uh, are dedicating some of those resources to. Um, uh, providing transportation to um, to uh, enable us to get kids and families up to our uh, facilities and engaged in programming and visiting our lakes and learning how to boat and and getting on our ropes course and um, you know hiking facilities and so on. So we're investing both in terms of our outdoor recreation programming as well as our um, um, you know, literally means of transportation, uh, uh, bus services buses and bus service uh, in order to to um, uh, provide access. And we know that people who haven't had regular access, even if there was a, a public uh, transit service, people who don't know uh, the outdoors, who don't know mountains, uh, you know, are not necessarily going to hop on a bus and, and head to the hills. And so it's providing those experiences mm -hmm. um, through programming um, and, and starting in Denver, you know, let's, let's do some of that outdoor 
um, uh, programming here. Um, and, and then eventually, uh, you know, getting people to be uh, more comfortable and excited about getting up into our mountains as well. I want to talk about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is one of our favorite topics here on the podcast. Yes, and mine especially too. now that it's got full funding, we've talked a lot about the federal side here and how important it is for protecting national parks and national public lands. We've done less uh, on the, the state side and city parks. Can you give us some examples of how Denver has used LWCF in the past and what the opportunities may be now that the program is fully funded? Yes, uh, one of my favorite topics too, and I, I, I was part of many around the country uh, uh, back in D.C. Uh, a little over a year ago, uh, um, uh, you know, lobbying for the the uh, permanent authorization and funding of uh, LWCF. So couldn't be happier with the most recent uh, uh, turn of events and and um, just the the leadership in in, in Colorado with. Congressman uh, Joe Nagoose now uh, uh, chairing the Parks and Forest uh, Subcommittee. Um, we uh, we um, we're just in good shape, and in in Denver, um, it, the L, uh, LWCF has been a really important resource to us. And you know, in my testimony last year, we tried to convince um, the committee members, the Congress members, that. Um, these resources were incredibly important in cities as well, that we certainly support all the efforts to uh, protect and preserve uh, our uh, wildlands across the country, Colorado, no exception, but it mattered in cities like Denver too. And so um, um, a project that we had like the Montbello open space, one of our traditionally underserved communities, a little isolated because of the you know, uh, highway access and the way the, the city is laid out. Um, so, you know, even access to other facilities uh, is, is challenging for that community. And we were able to create a, a five-acre uh, nature preserve, really a, a, a plains environment in, in partnership with a local uh, community-based uh, organization that's committed to giving kids these kinds of experiences and it was LWCF funds that helped us create that um, unique uh, open space that is really a, a, a you know a, a nature oasis in the middle uh, of a, a community that really uh, needs the, those services. Um, another um, underserved community um, in an area where there's been an, a lot of environmental justice issues in in the Globeville neighborhood where much of our industrial past was. Uh, recently uh, um, enjoyed uh, L- LWCF funding to uh, restore uh, Heron Pond, a, a, a wonderful natural area that uh, we, we are um, in the process of, of uh, constructing and designing and planning as we speak. So again, a real focus on um, neighborhoods that haven't had access uh, to natural areas um, and that has been a real focus for us in terms of applying for LWCF uh, grants. Uh, although in the past we've used them in Denver parks to help um, upgrade uh, old playground facilities, again in 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 neighborhoods that you know really needed the services. Uh, and so we see a lot of potential uh, in our city for accessing these funds to help ensure that 10-minute walk to a great space to help us uh, to 
envision more natural areas and, and more nature-based um, systems in, in our uh, existing park um, um, in our existing parks. Uh, and so we're pretty excited about uh, the opportunity to grow um, and improve and enhance our uh, park system, uh, particularly from a nature-based perspective, um, with uh, with these funds. And we're prepared to bring our share to the table. Our our voters spoke and have provided funding for us, and so it's a good partnership to have. You know, our uh, these nat- national uh, resources helping our states and helping our cities. Uh, to create the kinds of spaces that citizens, whether they're in urban or rural areas, um, deserve. The pandemic has touched, obviously, every aspect of life, but especially parks and how we get outside. Denver, very quickly last year, closed down a bunch of roads around and through parks in an attempt to let folks social distance I know there's been some rollback of that, but can you talk about the experience over the last year, the feedback you've gotten, and are we going to see uh, more more road closures, more permanent opening up space that was car space in and around parks uh, yeah. permanently? Great, great, great question. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, if ever there was an exclamation point on how vital parks are, uh, in a community, it was this past Absolutely. year during this pandemic when uh, parks really were our savior. Um, um, I, uh, I've described to many folks that, uh, um, but for our parks, you know, we might have all lost our minds. Um, in 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 the isolation and the you know and just the anxiety and the you know the uncertainty to be able to get out into our parks and and you know get fresh air and 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 in even socially distanced at least be able to see others and and um um to exercise i mean it it uh, um it was uh i i think the underscore to the notion that uh, our mental health that parks play such an important role to uh, our mental health and our mental well-being, as well as our physical well-being, and certainly our environmental health. And so, um, yeah, opening uh, uh, um, opening up those or closing the roads and opening them up to um, you know just users, park users, to walk and to you know to be outdoors and to really add uh, green space, if you will, um, was a really an important uh, endeavor. Um, and we were not alone. I mean, our uh, kudos to our Department of uh, Transportation and Infrastructure. They also closed uh, li- literally roads that people drive on <laughs> to get to and from places, uh, you know, in a recognition that people needed to be able to get outdoors um, close by and to be able to walk and just be outside. Um, and so all of us together are really pondering now, how do we, learning from that experience, how many of those closures can we keep? Uh, how how can we continue to provide that kind of nearby access to being outdoors, um, whether it's in a park or literally a, a nearby street that you know that uh, um, you know people can access? And so we've just uh, been involved in a, a planning process to uh, determine which roads we could continue to keep closed. And I'm happy to say that we, we've realized that we can do that with many of our roads. Uh, on the other hand, um, we talk about access issues and recognize that not everybody 
uh, can walk uh, to a park. And many of our families, and particularly with our large regional parks that have more of the amenities than a, than a small neighborhood park might have, that providing access to um, you know families that can't walk to those mm-hmm. facilities is important, um, and and certainly um, uh, providing ADA access uh, to people, uh, and so we know that our parks serve a very very diverse population with lots of different access needs, and so it's a balance. Uh, we want to keep some of the roads closed and provide more park space, but we want to also want to make sure that we have uh, good access for families that like to picnic, you know, um, and, you know, families that need to bring a carload of kids to a large regional playground to, uh, you know, to have fun and, or to see a lake. Not all of our parks have lakes. So uh, we just want to be sure that we are um, uh, providing uh, the, um, you know, equitable access to all of our facilities. As the parent of a, a 10-year-old and a 4-year-old, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about playgrounds and the future of play. A couple of my kids' favorites are Paco Sanchez Park, which has this yeah. spectacular music-themed, three-story tall climbing slide structure. My kids call it the beehives. It kind of looks like that. And then they also love Johnson Habitat Park, which is a, a criminally yeah. under no, you know, uh, underappreciated park along the South Platte that really is a more natural experience. Talk to me about how big immersive experiences like that come about. How how much harder or more expensive is it to put one of those in than a traditional uh, post and platform playground, as they're called? And and what can we look forward to? Uh, more of that? Where are those going to go? And, and what do you think the opportunities are for for taking play to the next level and making it more accessible in those ways that you talked about? Uh, a great question. And I, you know, taking play to the next level is exactly what, um, you know, it, it, it's, it is about with playgrounds. And you know, recognizing the, the, the things, you know, that, that, that playgrounds are, um, you know, not only uh, uh, outdoor, you know, exercise, um, but playgrounds are important learning environments uh, for kids um, that, you know, bringing my education um, passion to the table here um, and, and recognizing that our playgrounds fill lots of different needs um, for uh, kids and families. Um, Paco Sanchez, we're very proud of Paco Sanchez. Um, it's a state of the art um, and, and, um, in creating, you know, adventurous and, you know, uh, in a sort of a built playground that that also introduces the kind of uh, play that uh, is very adventurous. Um, and then a Johnson Habitat that is uh, what we know kids <laughs> love you know, is a bunch of logs and dirt. Um, and you know, we, we, I mean, and we, we want to create more nature based experiences. So we've done that along our our new, uh, 39th, uh, greenway, a greenway that literally was just created in, in the middle of a very underserved community that has a dual purpose of, of helping with, uh, storm, storm water, uh, um, drainage and, and, uh, providing a natural greenway, um, we've got some nature-based play uh, in uh, along that greenway, 
and we know it's a mix. Um, you know, um, we'll never get rid of swings and <laughs> slides because, you know, th- those activities, whether, you know, they're on formal playground equipment or, you know, sliding down the side of a hill, kids are going to want to swing and slide and climb. And um, they're also going to want to dig and get dirty. And um, and there's ne- – uh, I, I don't know any – um, family or any kid that isn't immediately drawn towards some water, yeah. uh, and preferably if there's mud involved. <laughs> and so, so we, you know, we're building, we're actually, uh, transforming one of our small playgrounds in a uh, city park, um, um, that has catered more to families with, with smaller kids in, in, in uh, partnership with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science is going to be transformed into a nature play. Um, that that focuses um, heavily on the younger uh, on younger children, uh, and we tested a few ideas um, in the park with uh, families bringing their kids to the park. And sure enough, uh, you know, sticks and water and mud and trees and climbing and logs uh, were uh, um, kids are immediately drawn to those kinds of experiences, which we think are very healthy and, and um, just really important uh, for their growth experiences. So lots more of that to come. My kids and I will be thrilled <laughs> as all of that Good. comes online. All right, last question, and it's a little silly, but I have to ask, are you a fan of the TV show Parks and Recreation? And how does that compare to real life, uh, the glamorous job of a parks administrator? It's a funny question because as soon as I got this job, people asked me, and I had actually never even heard of the show. I've only, and I've only seen a couple of uh, episodes on reruns. Uh, it, it is, and it is a silly show for sure. Uh, but I, I've discovered, and certainly a lot of my staff members had said, you know, there's there's an awful lot of truth in some of the zany. Uh, situations uh, that occur uh, uh, on that show, uh, you know, and, um, you know, and when you're in a people business like we are in, um, you know, we, we're often known to say, I, you know, that you can't make things up like that. Uh, and yet they do on this show. Um, <laughs> and we, we do experience a lot of the uh, crazy experiences and circumstances uh, that arise in, um, it is, uh, you know, it's all in good fun, and um, it it just lets us know that it reminds us that you know we are in the people business, um, connecting people to uh, nature and to outdoors, uh, and 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 um, it's really about ensuring those strong connections for people uh, to you know being outdoors and being in great uh, spaces. Happy Haynes, Deputy Mayor of Denver, Executive Director of Denver Parks and Recreation, and Colorado political icon. Thank you so much for your time today. This is just a fascinating conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to join you, and I'll I'll be looking for some future. Now that I know about your podcast, I'll be looking for some of your future topics for uh, myself. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you've made it to the end of another episode of The Landscape. I just want to acknowledge that it has been a terrible week for everyone here in Colorado. 
I recorded that interview with Happy last week, before the supermarket shooting happened in Boulder. I'm sure if we'd been talking today, she would have had insights or thoughts that I would want to hear right now, especially as someone who has spent her life in this state. Uh, We're a group that focuses on the outdoors. We talk about hunting here on the podcast, but gun violence and policy is way outside of our wheelhouse as a conservation group. And I'm frankly at a loss for words for what to say after yet another mass shooting here in a metro area that has seen so many of them over the last two decades. All of it's even harder to process, of course, coming after a year of a pandemic that has kept us all apart from one another. So I will just leave you with this. Take care of each other. If you are comfortable speaking up and speaking out, do it. Keep advocating for the change you want to see. Or if you just need someone to talk to, please do that. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, stay strong, take care of yourself, get outside for spring break if you can, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.